So the sort of research I do um, with paleontology, I, I really, it really comes down to observational scientific research. You, you find a fossil in the field, it gets prepared, then the whole process of describing it is really an artistic process. It involves drawing. I draw, nearly draw everything that I find, and then we photograph things using a variety of techniques, whether they be a standard camera, it could be scanning electron microscope, microfine CT scanner, and even synchrotron imagery, which I'll be showing you today. Then the whole process of creating a scientifically um, high-quality plate for publication often involves digital enhancement, but within a very strict set of guidelines. You obviously can't enhance your data too much to make things there appear that aren't there. And the next step involves artistic reconstruction, bringing some of these fossils to life as, as living organisms. That often also involves model making, building models of them. And finally, last year and this year, we've gotten into the whole process of animated filmmaking using CGI movies to present a major scientific discovery to the, to the, to the popular market. Um, we did this with two nature papers. We had published one this year, one last year, where the fossils were kind of small and difficult to see, so we made an animated movie to give to the media, and the results were, were fantastic. So I'm just going to go through this today. First of all, um, when you're in the field, you do get opportunities to take some lovely photographs, and I couldn't resist throwing in a couple of my shots from the field. Um, this is Geeky Gorge up in the Kimberley, and it's just a straight digital shot uh, showing the, the rainforest vine thicket on the left and the, the limestone rocks from the Devonian on the right in this, in this river, which actually becomes the largest river in Australia during the wet season, where the, the volume of nine times Sydney Harbour goes out into, into the, the Northern Ocean every day in the wet season. And it's a beautiful part of the world where I do my field work, this was once an ancient barrier reef 375 million years ago, and you can see that if the water was lapping the tops of those ridges, that would be the reef, and you've got a basin in there where the, the fish fossils accumulated in, a, in ancient muds. When we take photography in the field, it's, it's often not just holding a camera and taking a shot of the rocks or the fossil. I often spend a lot of time setting up shots because I give a lot of lectures, and, uh, and, and this shot, for example, I, I very often use the automatic um, mode on the camera and I put it on the ground. So the foreground shows you the, the important things, the nodules which contain the fossils. And I frame this one in such a way that it's got myself there in the middle and my boss, Robin Hurst, from the museum, one of the directors in the background. So I just thought it was a nice example of how you don't just take a field shot by, by holding a camera and pointing it. You set up a composition and try and emphasise that the subject matter is really the, the nodules in the foreground. But most of what I do is really scientific photography of specimens. And we had an amazing discovery last year of what was the world's oldest fossil vertebrate embryo. One of these four 375 million year old fish had a, an unborn baby, an unborn embryo in it, and a mineralised umbilical cord. And the photo you're looking at on the right there is an example of, of the correct sort of scientific photography of, of, that you'd use for publishing in a plate in a, in a journal. And in fact, that picture was published in the journal Nature. And the way it was set up was, it wasn't just, again, a camera on a stand. Uh, we used a, a high-quality 10-megapixel camera with a, a montage um, uh, software package that can take 60 planes of focus and then bring the whole thing into focus, sharp focus. And what you're looking at there, the tiny little... Oh, the scale didn't come out right. That's actually not a centimetre. It's about a centimetre. The field of, of the photograph there is two centimetres across, just to give you an idea of scale. We've got these tiny little jaws here. Um, 
picture's much clearer, obviously printed or on the screen because this is just a digital resolution. Uh, some of the little fossil bones, and this is the mineralised umbilical cord, which I'll show you as a, a CT scan image later where you actually look through the rock to see it running through the rock in 3D. And we published that, of course, in the journal Nature last year. Um, we use a variety of techniques for photographing fossils, um, and they invariably take two different opposite approaches. One is if you've got a fossil with um, various different colours on it, we're not interested in the colours, we're interested in the textures and the patterns and the, the sutures where the bones are. So this is a tiny little skull, it's about two centimetres long, it's from Arctic Canada, and it's got the most beautiful ornamentation or surface tubercles on it, as you can see, little stellate tubercles, little bumps and ridges. And so to photograph a fossil like that, we use ammonium chloride sublimate. We get a blower made of um, pyrex and we fill it with a chemical called ammonium chloride. We then heat that up on a Bunsen burner and ammonium chloride goes straight from a solid to a gas. It doesn't go through a liquid phase. So you then puff the smoke on the specimen and you get a nice even coverage and it highlights just the, the features, the surface features of the specimen and gives it a nice even contrast. I've got some other examples. This was one of the, one of the other go-go fishes that has embryos inside it. In fact, there's one there, one there, and one there. And so it's a very small specimen. That is a centimetre scale in the corner. And the whole thing was whitened with ammonium chloride just to get um, an even sort of contrast. Scientific photography for publication is has a convention of lighting from the top left corner, so the shadows are always to the, to the bottom right, and the variable degrees of shadow, depending on what you're trying to emphasise, this isn't a particularly good photograph, and this wasn't one published in a journal, because you can see the, the shadows over some of the plates are quite, quite intense. We would normally put a diffuse light around it, and then we'd simply highlight a stronger light source from the top right, so it's only mo moderately stronger from the top right. Uh, to give you an example, there's actually the plate, the final composition. And when we actually go to the point of publishing in a, in a scientific journal, it's then an amalgamation of the photography you've used uh, that's often in, um, mo moderately enhanced only with respect to contrast and brightness or maybe colour color values, but not um, actually digitally adding anything to the to original. If it's been digitally added to, and they can, they can tell this in Photoshop and so on, you might have that rejected by the editorial office of the journal because they want to know that you've got a true representation of your data. The data is more important than the quality of the photograph, obviously, for scientific photography. Although it must be a high-quality photograph or they'll send it back and make you submit another one. Now, there's a specimen of a fish from Gogo, and that's exactly as the specimen looks mounted in the museum. It hasn't got any artificial enhancements on it or anything, it's just a straight photograph. And you can see that the bones up close have a lot of different colours, specks of black, that's manganese deposits that, that have um, secondarily altered the bone and so on. But I'll show you a photograph of that when it's whitened with ammonium chloride with the correct lighting. Oh no, you'll get that again in a minute. And, and this is another example of a, a specimen coming out of the rock that hasn't been altered, hasn't been whitened in any form or shape or fashion. It's just the skull coming out of the rock. Now this is that other specimen um, of the dagger-tooth fish, Anicodus, that's been given an even coat of ammonium chloride over the entire surface. So it blocks out that uh, surface colour patterning, and instead you can just focus very clearly on the sutures 
and the scientific information, such as where the bones of the skull and snout, the nostrils in front are quite clearly defined, as is the eye and the, the big tooth well at the front. So that, that's um, a, a photo that's been altered with ammonium chloride supplement for, um, you know, for even photography. And again, this is another specimen which is a coelacanth skull we recently discovered. It hasn't been described yet. And you can see that the ammonium chloride supplement brings up every fine detail of that surface texture, that ornamentation, as we call it, on the, on the bone surface. It also helps you distinguish the different kinds of bone, because bone laid down in the skin or dermis has these tubercles and ridges and bumps on it, some of which are quite spectacular, like the lines of bone, the line on the gula plates to the bottom left, and the tubercles on the big opercular bone. But the smooth bones you're looking at in the, in the top area... Um, they're often neurocranial bones or endocranium. So they're not, they're not made in the dermis. They lack these dermal um, additions. And so they're what's called smooth perichondral bone. So good photography, um, with enhanced with ammonium chloride like this, helps you scientifically distinguish the, the origins of the different bone types as well, which otherwise are not so clear. Now, there's a, a, what I call a pretty crappy specimen it's a specimen that was actually on display in one of the museums in, in Britain of a fish called an acanthodian. And the only thing you can tell is that there's a sort of a spiky fin, fin spine in the middle down the bottom. And there's a mess at the top, which is actually the head. With, there's actually jaws and various bones there. And to the left is just a mass of tiny little microscopic scales. So that's, that's a specimen that isn't enhanced in any way, form or fashion. And to scientifically describe something like that, instead of etching it out of the rock like we did with the go-go fish where we dissolve the rock in weak acetic acid and we slowly get the bones out. We do the opposite. We dissolve the bones away completely with hydrochloric acid and that leaves an impression in the rock that's often much crisper and sharper where the bones had been. And then we pour black latex rubber in there um, coloured with some drops of Indian ink and we make a latex peel and then we whiten that peel with ammonium chloride and then the results are really spectacular. So to give an example, there's a, a fossil fish that's from a black shale deposit up in uh, the mountains of central Victoria near Mount Howard. And it doesn't look terribly good. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to pick where the bone is. The bone's the terribly grungy, browny-grey matter. And you can see the sort of the vertebrae of a tail going off to the left. Now, after that was prepared in, a, in um, hydrochloric acid and cast and then whitened, we get this really crisp definition. We're starting to get the the bone structure on the top and some of the very delicate, clear um, bones which are made of cartilage of the pelvic fin. And in fact, this figure was published in Nature in February this year because it showed the first evidence of this kind of fish having structures on the pelvic fin that we use for mating. And we use a number of other different kinds of photography in our research. Um, micro uh, photography of slides, um, this, for example, is a, a thin section cut to 30 microns of a tooth of a placoderm, just showing the, the different histological features of the tooth, the fact that it has a pulp cavity, and it's got semidentine, which in modern teeth, like human teeth, we have dentine. Dentine is just that the dentine tubercles are arranged in such a way that there's no cell space is visible, but this is a more primitive type of dentine that still has remnant cell spaces at the base. So, again, this photography has a purpose purely to show the scientific structures of these, these kinds of teeth. Scanning electron microscopy is another technique we use, and uh, that's 
can get good magnification up to about 10,000 times. This doesn't use light, it uses backscattered electrons as, as the beam which hits the, the object, the, the electrons scatter and they're captured and they, they can make these images. So of course there's no colour, it's always black and white. They can be artificially coloured or enhanced if, for artistic purposes only. But in terms of the science, we're only trying to show structures here that are too small to show by other, other means of light photography. And what we're looking at here in figure A are mineralised muscle cells from a go-go placoderm. And in B, we've got a nerve cell, an individual neuron with the axial plate preserved. In C, we have a microcapillary. And in D, it's just showing the, the structure of the calcium phosphate crystals that have replaced the soft tissue. This was published in the journal Biology Letters in 2007. Um, involved, well, my work involves a lot of drawing, a lot of artwork, and I use a camera lucida, which is a drawing tube attached to a microscope. Um, often when you're looking down the microscope, like these tiny little embryonic bones, which are, you can see the scale there, five millimetres. Um, that's actually from one of the photos I showed you earlier. And I'll sit there and the, the camera lucida will reflect the image you see in the microscope out through a mirror onto a piece of paper. So all you really have to do is trace the outline on the piece of paper faithfully. There'll always be distortion towards the edges, and you realise this as you move the paper around to make you know different field of views match up. You notice sometimes the lines don't meet exactly. So you have to then just focus on the central part of the drawing and not draw to the edge of your field of view. If you do that, you can faithfully reproduce um, the image you see under the microscope artistically quite accurately. Uh, in terms of shading, I, I'm basically self-taught. Um, a friend of mine who's an artist just gave me some exercises to do one day with a ball and light and shading and cross-hatching and so on. So basically you get a rough idea of the areas that are, that are raised and the areas that are in, in shadow. And again, using the same convention of the light from the top left. The second step is then often taking that into a, a computer medium using Illustrator and quite often we'll then... To, to illustrate something simple like the growth of these bones from the embryo to the adult, the diagram on the right just shows a simple Adobe Illustrator computer diagram tracing the bones from a photograph on the computer and then scaling them up to show the, the different rates of growth. Sometimes this can get a bit fancy. This is a, an illustration I'm using in a book that's coming out next year on evolution of fishes, and it's just a, a brain case of a shark where I've used Illustrator and some of the gradient tools there to give you a, an idea of the, the raised and the, and the different sections of it. And finally, you can even do quite, um, quite um, imaginative artwork. This is one where I was trying to get across a point to people. I, again, I use this illustration in one of my books, and I often use it in lectures, that how much of the human body plan had evolved in my Devonian fishes. So I got the skeleton of one of my fish called Gogonases, I simply scaled up every bone in the skeleton to the same proportions as a human. So I could demonstrate to people that 90% of the human body planet had actually evolved and appeared in these Devonian fishes. And after that, it was tuning of proportions and minor losses or minor fusions of bones. I also do a lot of just straight artwork. Um, in my book, Rise of Fishes, came out in 1995, which is the book I'm revising to come out again next year. Um, I didn't have a budget for an artist, so I couldn't afford one. So I ended up doing 55 of these little colour paintings myself and illustrated the fish as best I could. Um, again, it was just practice and some of them weren't good and they were rejected and others were okay and they got used in the book. So I did my best. You just have to practice, I suppose, and try. But not as good as this piece of art. This is a bit of 
probably the, one of the world's best scientific illustrators for paleo work, Peter Trussler, who's based here in Melbourne. And he's done a lot of work for uh, Tom and Pat Rich, doing books for the Wildlife of Gondwana, which won the Eureka Prize, I should add, for the best scientific book uh, a few years ago. And uh, he's also done some wonderful dinosaur illustrations for them. And uh, this is what it's, what it's like to bring one of those go-go fish to life in a, a truly artistic sense. And it's not just a matter of the artist getting a sketch and going off and doing it. He actually worked with me for a number of months, um, getting all the details accurate, quizzing me about what would the gills be like, what would the skin be like, what could have moved its jaws to this degree. So he did a, a huge amount of research to actually take the fossil and, and bring it to life like this. This painting, I think, sells, or was one of the ones, it's in the, the price range of about $10,000, I think. And there's another recent one that Peter did for us, for our paper in Nature only a few months ago, where we were illustrating the origin of, of, of mating, copulatory mating in these placoderms. Some of the other um, techniques we use involve the synchrotron and microfine CT scanners. Now, most of you will know CT scanners from going to to the doctor or a friend who's been to the doctor, a CT scanner normally, say if you go into a hospital and they want to do a scan of your brain, they normally slice through about half a millimetre slices. So for something big like a human brain, that will give you enough slices to build up a three-dimensional model. But at the ANU in Canberra, my good colleague here, Tim Sendon, on the left, has developed one of the world's finest micro-CT scanners. Now this means that you can only do little things, like things no bigger than five, five centimetres by five centimetres by five centimetres. goes into the chamber that you can see, the little silver chamber there, and then a rotating uh, disc x-rays it thousands of times, like running all night for seven or eight hours, building up slices down to one micron. That's a thousandth of a millimetre. So you've got x-rays here that are 500 times more precise than the hospital CT scans that we use. And the results are absolutely outstanding. This, for example, doesn't look that great, but when I show you the movies in a minute, you'll see how smooth they are. This is the tiny little jaws from that embryonic placoderm uh, that we, we photographed um, in, the, in the plain light, just shown through a, a CT tomogram. And there's the umbilical cord that runs through the rock. Now, part of that fossil is exposed, and part of it is still in the rock. And what you're looking at there is a whole lot made transparent as if all the rock was taken away. So you can actually see the path of the wiggly cord sort of running around. It's really, really quite amazing. And again, we figured this illustration in the, in the paper. And there's a good example. That's a, a shark's tooth from, from Gogo. And the one on the left, you can see it's, it's about four millimetres across. And the image on the right is a micro CT scan of the same tooth where we've actually made the, the whole tooth become transparent so we can look at the internal structures, the canals and the root uh, features and so on. So it's a valuable tool for describing these things in detail because it's not good enough just to describe it as a tooth with three or four cusps and a broad root. You've got to understand all the, the intricate vascular systems inside them to distinguish one species from another. And this is one of my favourite things. It's an eyeball, a fossil eyeball from the limestones near Tamus in New South Wales. Um, it's one that a, a colleague of mine found, but I was a student at the time and actually prepared it out of the rock and described it. And that's what it looks like as an actual eyeball. And this is a CT scan movie showing how we dissect it and you can go right inside it using the, uh, the micro CT scanner machine up at the ANU. So for the first time, 
we can get inside it now and look at all these structures, how the retractor bulbi muscle might have attached the, to, to move the eyeball within the, the capsule. This is a shell. Um, as I pointed out before, the, the dermal bones are the ones with the heavy ornamentation around them. And at the back, where there's no ornamentation, it's called perichondral bone. We don't have this kind of arrangement anymore. We don't have bones around our eyes, but it's a very primitive condition. Now, this is the inner ear of a fossil whale bone. Again, a CT scan movie. And it just shows that the lump of bone that hides the, the cochlea and the inner um, ear canals um, is beautifully uh, rendered away by phase contrast alteration. In other words, as you get the CT x-rays, you simply play with the, the different um, intensities of, of them until you get the balance that where, you, where you can see different structures. So that's a block of it. If you saw the specimen, it would just be like a, like a lump, you know, the size of your fist. And then as the CT movie goes through, you see the, all the different features. But the ultimate tool, the, the big thing to play with these days, is a synchrotron. Now, Melbourne, of course, has built a synchrotron, and it's going to be one of the best in the world um, when the image beam, beam line comes on, on line later, I think this year or early next year, for medical imagery. This is the one that my colleagues and I have been using in Grenoble in France, and um, this gets down to a third of a micron in sharp resolution. What it is is a ex particle accelerator that accelerates beam, beams of subatomic particles, I'm not sure, maybe electrons, at a very, very high acceleration so they can pass through materials and then you can pick up the, the scattering of those um, to get clear images. And what we've been studying is... Sorry, this is a, there's a CT image there with, with the wax model. It's actually out of, out of phase, out of place, this image, but I, I put it in anyway because I got it from a colleague. But back to the synchrotron. If we're looking at some of these go-go fish bones that are incredibly well preserved, we can go down to a line, a, a sort of a limit of resolution where the CT scanner won't show up these sort of structures. And what we're looking at are these things called Sharpies fibres. Now, the muscles on your skeleton attach to bones, and when they attach to bones, you have Sharpies fibres going in from the muscle to the bone, and they're so minute that they're hard to detect. Using the synchrotron, what we're doing at the moment, this is a project that we're about to submit a paper on later this year, is we can use the Sharpies fibres orientations on the fossil bones to reconstruct where the blocks of muscles might have run in the living organism. There's just a, a rough animated movie using conventional CT scanning of, a, of fish jaws going up and down. Again, I, I used that just really, it should have been back further to um, contrast against the CT scan movies, which are very, very smooth. There's a synchrotron-generated photograph of a piece of placoderm bone showing the different structures. Now, that's, that's not all that amazing, but... This is a built-up synchrotron image of a tiny fraction of that bone showing all the different tissues from the sharpest fibres, which are the, the pointy little rods, the purple ones at the top and the bottom, which go in different orientations. The big red blobs are the sort of lacunae or spaces between the spongy trabecular bone in the middle, and you'll see the thin lamina bone on the outside. Now, let's show you a movie of what it looks like to build those structures up using the synchrotron imagery, and that's what you get. Really is quite amazing. So there's no other way you can determine these sort of structures without using a synchrotron. And finally, the last little bit is putting it all together as an animated movie. And this is something we used a Melbourne company called Real, Real Pictures in Footscray, Alf Kuhlman, to 
take our fossil and then build it up as a living organism, make a, make a little movie that we could show to the media and put on YouTube and give to the world's... Um, anyone's interested. We, we gave it away free without condition so anyone could have it, anyone can use it. And, uh, yeah, showing what the oldest uh, live birth was like. So, yeah, so that, that's all I've got to say. This is a little bit of a tour through the sort of different uses and, and methods of photography. <coughs> at least as it pertains to paleontology. Now, Fred's going to talk about quite other areas of scientific photography that is, is, is well away from my realm of, of expertise. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, John. Are there any questions? As a, as a lay person, what, you know, is it revolutionary that you can now use a synchroton and, and why? It is revolutionary because... Um, once upon a time, our level of investigation stopped as far as you could see the, the specimen under a microscope. And it is revolutionary because, in a sense, we can now look at structures at the level below a CT scanner can pick up that help us build up an anatomical picture of, of how these fish functioned. The final result of that synchrotron work is going to be a picture of a placoderm fish that died 380 million years ago with all the muscle blocks attached to it. And then we can compare it with living fish like sharks and bony fish and solve a big evolutionary problem that's always been a mystery. Because at this stage, nobody knows where placoderms fit in, whether they're closer to bony fish or closer to sharks. By reconstructing their complete muscular anatomy, we should have a good idea of solving that problem. That's what we aim to do. Yeah. Yes? I have a question you showed about the whale's ear. Yep. Comparing that to today's whale. Yes, and again, that's another paper that we've got in, in the system at the moment. The big, the big um, breakthrough using the CT scan uh, technology is it doesn't just build a photo or an image of that cochlea, but it can measure the volume of the cochlea. And in measuring the volume of the cochlea, we can work out the um, frequencies of echolocation. So we can actually look at the evolution of echolocation in modern baleen whales by using this ancestral form. And we can actually pinpoint when that feature developed and how it developed in relation to changes in the ocean, climate, continents, currents, etc., and put it into the big picture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, sort of yep. Yeah. Uh, I should have showed you a model actually. I didn't have one picture of one. We have. In fact, I did skip a... I, I put this together late last night. You can imagine this is my last week at Museum Victoria before I leave, so it's a frantic week. And I put this talk together late last night. I should have had an extra slide showing the model that we've built of the mother fish. In order to make the final animation, you can't just give the animator a picture. What we did was our preparators at Museum Victoria built up a three-dimensional life-size model of the fish in plasticine, which I oversaw and... and we have a, an approximation of how the muscular system might have gone, but uh, it's the best guess, you know, at that stage. But we did build a model, and then we put it through a scanner, a 3D scanner, so he had a computer-generated um, template to, to play with to make the animation. And there was another question, I believe. Yep. I've got two questions. Yep. Fire away. The first one is, do you have any favourite fossil hunting grounds around Australia? I know there are places like Inglock and Queensland. Are there any yep. sort of... Well, Gogo, I've been up there for the last 23 years and it is my favourite place. But I grew up in Melbourne and I used to collect fossil sharks deep down at Beaumaris and different places like that. So there are plenty of localities. Victoria is fantastic. It's got fossil localities all different ages within a one or two hour drive. 
Whereas in Perth, you've got to go quite a long way to get into the really good fossil science. Okay, my second question, and maybe I'll speak in a third if I can. Second question is, what should somebody walking along the beach do? They think they've stumbled across a fossil. Is there a protocol? Should they be in a museum, or could they souvenir it, or what, what's the... Well, it's hard to recognise a good fossil if you find one on the beach. It's trilobite rock washes up or something. Well, if you think it's a trilobite, you can take it into the museum and show it to someone. They're not going to take it off you. Um, it's a matter of... Uh, I used to find these fossils and I didn't know what they were, so I'd bring them into the museum and they'd identify them for me and help me find other fossils. So we're there to help people, so bring it in to the museum. Yeah. Finally, yeah. Um, when you find a fossil and you work out whether you should extract it... Well, that's different. That's it, yeah. how do you actually determine which is the best process and does it ever go wrong? It does, it does. I have I've damaged specimens, but not lost them completely. Um, it's practice and, and, and experience. Basically, if it's in limestone, you can dissolve the limestone away and the bone won't be dissolved, it won't affect it. And that kind of preservation means the bone is usually very well preserved. But in these deeply weathered shaley rocks from central Victoria, the bone is often horribly weathered when you find the fossil in the first place. So there's nothing much you can do with it apart from do the negative uh, preparation.